welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story, and together we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're featuring Luthier Stephen Marchioni. A special thanks to our Patreon members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on High Action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash highaction. Hello, hello, hello. Episode 33 of the High Action Podcast. We were just sitting here reminiscing on the glory days and what we call road stories, which are stories that took place when we were either in a van, in a plane, or in some other type of transportational device. And I think this is a perfect time to go over some highlights of the New West Road Stories book, which okay, we should but write. First, we should what are some other transportational devices? <clears throat> I don't know. Did Were we ever on a boat or a ferry? Yes, we oh, were. Yeah. From Port this? Townsend to Seattle. Train. Oh, okay. I wasn't on that. I wasn't on that with you guys. Lots of trains. <laughs> right, right. So... <laughs> If we're thinking about travel stories, John, you just got off the road on a little solo solo trip yourself. Uh, why don't you go first? Why don't you share a fun travel story? I drove out in rural Nevada, which we have some pretty fun New West stories out there, getting the car cranked up at a pretty high speed, um, even though we try, to, we try to follow the rules as much as we can. But yeah, I mean, man, just the routine of staying in the Best Western and finding the coffee and filling up the tank, and then you hit the road, and then you talk about the night before, and you listen back to the show, and maybe we thank God for our iPhones. We could sit there and do a little promotion, or we can reach out to our friends in the cities we're going to. There's this routine, and it's so funny. When I just did my trip to see my my parents, now that I'm fully vaccinated, I finally got to go to Oregon, I still have that routine in my head a little bit of like, okay, what? am I promoting? And I'm like, wait a minute. The whole yeah. point of this trip is just to see people. It's not to actually go play shows. Right. Yeah. Harry, how about, how about yourself? Yeah, I've got some good stories from the road. God, uh, probably too many. <laughs> and I probably can't share all of them here. Um, I would go against certain jazz musician code. <laughs> but before I do that, uh, I think it's time to celebrate someone's birthday today. Will Braun. You're turning uh, 32 years old. The big three, two. That's correct. That's correct. Wow. Yeah. Happy birthday. And uh, to honor your, your birthday, I will tell, a, tell the listeners a very funny Will Brom story from your first tour. First tour. Uh-huh. You were up in Seattle, and you were rocking the all-powerful Eastman. The El Rey. The Eastman El Rey. A fine guitar. A fine guitar. <laughs> yeah. And we had just done some TV promotion thing. I think it was like, uh, what was it called, John? Northwest Sounds of the New Northwest. Day Northwest. It's new a new day, day all over. <laughs> new Day Northwest. Great promotion. I mean, it's yeah. like, you know, on the basic cable <laughs> channels up there. Yeah. And we're packing out. We're like loading out or something afterwards. And your L Ray just falls right out of the case <laughs> yeah. onto the cement <laughs> of the parking garage. Like it was never zipped up. It just. Yeah, you just yeah. never bothered to buckle the case. And you just, just grabbed the guitar and it just <laughs> fell right out. And you just looked up at us and you're like, ah, oh, it's fine. It's just an Eastman. 
Uh, and it still played fine. I mean, honestly, you gotta gotta give it to those cheaper guitars. They don't really break. I know, not like the 175 over here, which <clears throat> headstock has broken twice. And the I've also got a crack down the back of it because it was like, Ooh. you know, too dry. Some one of these years, I was up in Canada, and the whole back opened up a little bit. So, Dang. yeah, something to be said for the old El Rey. You know, there is. It's still here, and I still have it. I've, I've held on to it. So my uh, my road story, I don't remember exactly where we were. We were somewhere between Redding and Southern Oregon in that no man's land. And we were playing at a winery. You remember this? And it was beautiful. And we were playing. And at some point, I looked to the back of the room. There's an older gentleman with his hands just straight over his ears. <laughs> Like, just blatantly covering his ears. Like, oh, it, it was picturesque. It was picturesque. And I remember even Perry bringing it up after the show going, guys, I think we might be playing too loud. There was some gentleman who literally his hands were plastered over his ears. And then I think the promoter or someone was like, oh, don't worry. He always does that. Or he, it was, it's quite a funny thing to see when you're really playing and feeling the music, someone just covering their ears. You can't get everybody, you know, you can't win over everybody. Yeah. All right. So today we have a wonderful luthier by the name of Stephen Marchione on the show. A wonderful interview with him. John and I both play his guitars. Yeah, we hope you, uh, we hope you enjoy this interview. Stephen has a lot of great stories. And one of the things that really stood out to me about him was the similarities that he had just throwing himself in to learning how to build guitars the same way that you know, we all had in early years just throwing ourselves into playing gigs, right? It's true, man. And, you know, real quick, before we cut to the interview, I just want to mention we're still kind of doing a spring pledge drive for our Patreon. And we've got about 10 more people we're trying to round up to come join us over there. You can join us for a dollar a month, and it goes directly to helping us put all these episodes together. We have some new New West videos to share with you guys, but we're not going to release them until we get to our goal. So follow us over at Patreon. We appreciate all of you guys joining us. It goes a long way right now while we're in the middle of producing all this. We're getting super busy, so uh, thank you guys for joining us over there. But Spring Pledge Drive, let's get there. Ten more followers over on Patreon. Yeah, and I would just add to that for listeners that are interested in the Patreon that we're actually doing some guitar playing on there. We're talking about sort of what we're working on individually, some of the things we're working on as a as a group. So if you want a little bit of behind the scenes and kind of dive a little deeper into actual guitar playing, um, the Patreon is for you. That's right. And when you join at certain levels, you can even request things for us to play. Like if you have a favorite tune, you want to hear us do a version of it. Yeah. If you have specific guitar questions, um, kind of informal, quick Q&A lesson topics, join us there at the $10 a month and we can get you guys uh, a lot of kind of indirectly some, some lessons, even if, if you guys who are listening are jazz players, for sure. Come hang with us on Patreon. And without further ado, here is episode 33 with Luthier Stephen Marchione. Yeah, man. Can we start with with your beginnings and and what got you into being a Luthier and I'm also curious how much time you spent in Italy versus Texas. Oh, well, 
I'm a Texan, but yeah, we'll talk about that. Sure, sure. When I was seven and eight, I, I was born and lived in New York City when I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. So my dad's family, they were all Sicilian immigrants. Some of them of Italian origin and some were of Spanish origin. Because Sicily was part of Spain for a long time. Mm-hmm. My mom's family, well, they were everybody was Catholic. So my mom's family kind of hung with the Irish Catholics, but they were actually of Manx descent, British Isles. Okay. And I did some genetics and they were actually German, which is interesting because my maternal great grandmother was German too. Hmm. So when I looked at the genetics, it was German, Spanish, and Italian. Nice. Even though everybody was kind of English on my mom's side, but it, they were actually really Germans. So that was news to me recently. Um, so when I was pretty young, my folks moved here to Houston. So I grew up here. I grew up here. Then I spent my summers, summers in New York City or Italy. And I grew up speaking some Italian and some Spanish. Mm -hmm. But then we went and moved to Italy. My mom was doing a graduate program there. Where in Italy? And we, in Bergamo, which is between Milano and Cremona, basically. So I spent a lot of time in those cities. And Bergamo is part of that whole culture up there, the Northern Italian, Germanic Uh, It's a wealthy part of Italy. Mm -hmm. So in the town that I lived in, where I went to school, there was a luthier, a guitar and violin maker. And that's when it started, because I'd go by his shop and look in the window, and I would think, that is like the coolest thing I've ever seen. So then we moved back to Texas, And my first guitar, by coincidence, was from that guy. I don't remember his name. I don't have the guitar anymore. Uh But another teacher who worked with my mom had done the graduate program. It was in Montessori. That's where the International Institute is. Mm. So it's like master's degree. So she had this guitar, and my brother wanted to learn how to play guitar. But I was always the one picking it up. <laughs> yeah. Correct me. You have a degree in jazz guitar, don't you? That's correct. Yeah. From Naropa University. Yeah. <clears throat> so I had heard about the music program there because Robin Ford taught there in the summers. And I was a big fan at the time of Steve Tibbetts. The album that had just come out then was called Exploded View. That was like mind blowing for me when I heard that album, because I'd been listening to pretty, you know, standard Miles Coltrane, all of which I still love, but Exploded View was like, wow, there's so much more you could do with improvised music. It just, you know, it was like I got hit by a truck, mm-hmm. right? And he t- he taught there. That was a great experience. So my teachers were. You know, Robin Ford, Steve Tibbetts. I had Art Landy, the jazz yeah. pianist. He had moved there. That was a, like, super rich environment. And Boulder was beautiful. 
at the time, the summer that I got accepted to Naropa, so this is an important part of the story, because we're mixing music and guitar making, right? Uh-huh. So I knew a guitar maker in Houston named Steve Smith. Uh, he made mandolins, guitars, and um, he did some violin work, too. Uh-huh. Uh and he was friends with a bunch of other musicians I knew in Houston. So I commissioned a guitar from him. Mm. And that summer before I moved, and then actually the project went on for a while, but I'd go visit the shop and look at stuff. Uh, and he made me a beautiful guitar and I used it exclusively for like two years. It was a two humbucker set neck, but modern electric, you know, but had the humbucker tone. <clears throat> and as a kid, when I was much younger, one thing that I did love to do was find woodworking. I went to a Catholic camp in the summer and they had a full wood shop. So I spent a lot of time in there. So I knew how to use all my tools, um, table saw, sanders, drill press, all that stuff. Um, and then I was always working on carving projects as a kid. I loved carving. Um, I made a lot of walking sticks where I'd carve the heads into like a snake or something else. Yeah. That was my mind, right? Like find a piece of wood and make something cool out of it. So what was funny when Steve was making me the guitar is he'd show me the progression and I'd look at the guitar and I'd say like, the fingerboard's not proportional. You know, it's like too slanted this way. And he'd look at it and he's like, I remember he literally said, how the fuck can you see that? Yeah. So I'm already seeing this. So when I moved to Boulder, then I started doing crazy shit because I had a bunch of imported, you know, I guess Japanese at the time, strats and tellies and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I started ripping that stuff apart and rebuilding it like wow. a madman. Yeah, so I made a bunch of Frankentellies and strats, but I I didn't know what I was doing and I didn't have any books. So like when I would disassemble the guitar, I'd make a map of all the parts so I could put it back together. Sure. So after Europa, did you go straight to New York? Okay, so I actually wanted to move to Los Angeles. And I got some jobs in schools in LA teaching music. And so my idea was to play and teach mm -hmm. to support myself. But my girlfriend who became my wife, like in a couple of years, she had family in New York and there was like, this is with her sister. Mm -hmm. So her mom lives in Greenwich village, like still same apartment to this day. And I used to love going there with her. You know, she, she lived six or seven blocks from the 55 bar. Wow. So we would go hang. I would go to the 55 bar like as much as I could. And so we packed up and moved to New York. Now, all my Italian family was there, too. Like, I had very strong roots in New York City. And I had spent tons of time there as a kid. So... That was all fine. We got an apartment in the East Village, and that was when the East Village was still pretty wild. Like, an apartment there was half the price of, of the West Village, like right. literally half the price. I was talking to one of my Naropa teachers, who was the Denver jazz guitarist Dale Brunning. I was talking to Dale, 
And um, he said, well, you love guitar making and you've got all that history with, you know, loving it and going back to Italy and this and that. He said, why don't you go up to 48th Street and get a job with one of the guitar makers? And I was like, yeah, that's a perfect idea. So I went out um, on a long walk from the East Village and was like, okay, I'm going to go find a guitar making job. Like, it was that naive. Today's podcast is sponsored by Education Through Music Los Angeles. ETMLA partners with under-resourced schools to provide music as a core subject for all children and utilizes music education as a catalyst to improve academic achievement, motivation for school, and self-confidence. ETMLA believes that every child deserves access to high-quality music education taught by qualified and well-trained music teachers. Music can support learning in other key subjects, including math, science, and language arts. ETMLA was founded by their executive director, Victoria Lanier. She has incredible experience in music education, and she's a brilliant violin teacher. We know these folks. We know this organization. They're great people, and they're a 5013C nonprofit. So for people out there who are in a position to donate, a position to give back, we hope you all consider our favorite music education program, Education Through Music Los Angeles. You can find them at etmla.org. So I went up to 48th Street, which I hadn't been to yet. You know, I've only been living in New York at this point for like three or four months. Right. But but I was over on the east side of 48th Street, and I was like, I don't see any fucking music stores up here. Right. <laughs> so I, I walked back to the East Village. All right. So then I called somebody and said, where are the stores? And they were like, oh, just look up Manny's. You know, they're all up by Manny's. And I was like, okay. So I looked it up, 7th Avenue and Broadway, where they cross. Right. So the next day, I hopped on the N train, which from my neighborhood dropped you off right there, like right. almost on that corner. And I went first to ESP Guitars. Uh-huh. And I said, I want a guitar-making job. And I introduced myself. So it was another Italian-American guy who I'm still friends with, Rich Labuti. And he was a manager of ESP and a good guitar player. And he was like, Paisano, listen, Rudy needs a guy like right now because John Sir is in his last six months there. And he said, Rudy will hire you because, you know, I, I told him some background, but he's like, he needs somebody who knows how to use woodworking tools. So I crossed the street. I went and introduced myself to Rudy. And he said, what are you doing now? I said, nothing. And he's, he was like, okay, so you can use a table saw and a sander. And I was like, yeah, I grew up using that stuff. So he said, I was wearing nice clothes. He said, come to work tomorrow. Um, nine o'clock sharp and wear dirty clothes because you're going to get messy. That's great. But, <laughs> so that was that was my experience getting a job making guitars. Oh, um, now w- working with John Sir, it was the same situation as I was stuck or I found myself in with the jazz ensemble at University of Houston. Mm-hmm. So. They're making very, very high-end guitars, and they're doing there's some repairs, but there's a lot of restoration of nice guitars. And 
John was, he had all these orders to finish up in his last six, eight months, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. So I, I did some uh, work for him, like, uh, right away, like sanding bodies and sanding some lacquer, you know, basic stuff. And he was happy. So he told Rudy, uh, definitely keep him on. And within two weeks, I was just going down that rabbit hole. Yeah. So what I was doing in the beginning mostly was sanding all the contours of the carving on those MK1 guitars, mm-hmm. um, which is a model I still make. So those are Knopfler's models. Got it. Okay. Uh, um, and then I slowly learned the proper technique for the repair stuff. So how to cut a nut properly, how to dress the frets properly. And then John moved me on to fretting. Now, John was one of the first guys who always fretted necks under string tension, which I still do. Hmm. You know, that was unheard of in 1990. Hmm. Nobody was doing that. So very soon I was fretting all the necks too. And then, uh, John and his previous apprentice Moss hated, hated doing any acoustic work at all. So any acoustic work that came in, I got to do it. Um, so I had a copy of the Don Teeter books. These are old guitar making books. They're from like the eighties and it was all about repairing Martins, like a whole technique. And I read those like, for months over and over and over again to learn techniques of how to do the acoustic repairs. But once I learned the technique, you know, I had the hands from the beginning. So if I knew the technique, I could do it. So I didn't have actual problems working on the guitars. It was more getting the knowledge to do it. Um, so then John left and because I had a background and understood business and communication and how to talk to customers, Rudy made me the manager of the shop upstairs. So that happened like in, let's say eight months. I mean, it was very fast. And so I started shifting the focus up of Rudy's shop, which they still use today. So, we took it away from John had done a lot of basic repairs too. And we kind of removed that. I mean, we would do them for like old customers, but what we were doing was more focus on making new guitars and then higher end restoration work. So, uh, at the same time, Rudy started buying old three thirty-fives and like crazy and then we would do enough restoration work to make them saleable. You know, they were all, always in bad shape. Um, and then he got the D'Angelico bug. I mean, he always loved D'Angelico, you know, being a, a New York. He, his background's Argentinian, but he, he's Italian-Argentinian. So he loved that whole part of the business. And... Jimmy DeQuisto used to come see us at the shop and also hang out with Rudy. So that's when I got to know Jimmy was honestly in 90. Um, and he would come in like, I don't know, two or three times a year. 
but he was great. Whatever you were working on, Jimmy would like say, Hey, let me see that. And he'd check it out. Like if it was a new guitar and he's like, Hey, that's a good idea. You know, something with an electric or he'd say, yeah, you should try this. Yeah, he was, he was very open guy and very like excited to see the young guys working. Um, and as you guys know, and I found out in the jazz world, a lot of the older cats aren't like that. <laughs> they're focused. They're focus, great ones. And then there's the guys who just want to put you down, right? Keep you in your place. So Jimmy was not that guy. Jimmy was the guy who takes you in and makes you feel loved and supports your art, right? Because what, what did he had no reason to be competitive. <laughs> there, there never, never was and never will be another Jimmy DePuisto, right? <laughs> So when that started going on, Rudy started buying a lot of Dungelicos. And this is right when I really got nuts about Archstock guitars. So I already knew Jimmy. I'd already worked on a bunch of Super 400s and L5s. And I mean things like refretting, fixing lacquer, you know, pretty big jobs, making a new bridge, um, rewiring them a lot. So then he started buying the Dangelicos, and those needed a lot of work. Um, yeah. It was not on not not uncommon for like the binding to be coming off, or the pick guards were already dissolved. I mean, you've seen pictures of that stuff, but it was already happening in '90. Right. Um, so that was that was super exciting, and at that point, I was like, I want to make archtop guitars. So. I had a bench in my tiny East Village apartment and I got paid some cash every week, you know, a check and some cash. So Garrett Wade tools was in Manhattan then, and they sold high end woodworking tools. So every Saturday I take whatever cash I had, I'd go to Garrett Wade and spend all my cash on tools <laughs> to build my own collection of hand tools. Oof. Because I, I figured at some point I'm going to be on my own and I'll need them. But at the same time, I was making electrics at home. I made my first OM guitar in like 91, like very early. But when the arch top thing happened, I didn't have enough room to make an arch top guitar at home. So I made an F5 mandolin. And that was an amazing learning experience. So that would have been 91. Anyway, as I was saying with the Dangelicos, and knowing Jimmy and the whole New York vibe, I was like, okay, I'm going to become an archtop guitar maker. And right about then, it was the end of 92, I started thinking more seriously because at this point I bought like two years worth of hand tools on Saturdays. I was starting to get a nice accumulation. And so I had mentioned to Jimmy and he was receptive and was thinking about going out to see him to talk about an apprenticeship. And I was actually thinking about moving out to Long Island. I actually have family that lives right near Greenpoint where he, his shop was. Hmm. And then there was just a bunch of family stuff with my first wife and we really got stuck in Manhattan. So I, I gave up that idea and then I came to Texas, and 
was visiting family here. It was like the end of summer and I maybe, maybe early September. I go back to New York city and Rudy lays me off. He said, like, it was friendly, but he said, you're on your own mission at this point. And because I had been talking about him, like buying more tools and like seriously making more guitars. Mm -hmm. For instance, Tom Anderson was making all the bodies and necks for Pensacer. And I mean, Tom's stuff was amazing, but Rudy and his wife had had a falling out with Tom. And so I wasn't happy with how things were winding or ending up. Right. So I proposed to Rudy, why don't we get another space? And I knew what tools we needed to make this stuff from scratch. And basically he was like, that's what you want to do. It's not what I want to do. So you should do your thing and I'll do my thing. And the other apprentice, uh, Moss Hino, that had been John's previous apprentice, he then brought in a couple of Japanese guys to uh, w work and basically they just focused on repairs. I mean, they kept making some guitars, but without Tom as the source, then thing that changed a lot of stuff, right? And I wasn't there because I was doing most of the building. Anyway, I went back to my apartment. I thought about it for a day. And then I talked to an old friend of mine um, who had some guitars I made at Pensa Sur and was a great musician and recording studio guys, uh, Michael Perez Cisneros, great guy. And... Michael was like, ah, oh, man, I have the perfect idea for you. Once again, this happened all in like two days, just like everything else. So he's like, Harry Colby, the ant maker. I don't know if you guys know him. Okay. So he said, Harry Colby's in this big loft on 20th Street, like right off of Broadway. So middle 20th Street, very close to my East Village place on 13th Street. And he said... Harry's business is a little slower than it was, and he's got this huge space in the back of the loft. I'm sure he'd love to have you come in. You could rent, sublet some space from him, and then you guys could share customers. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. So I went and talked to Harry with Michael the next day. Harry said, done deal. You can start moving your stuff in immediately. I set up, I set up shop immediately. Uh -huh. And the first thing I had done was getting my logo worked out, getting my trademarks, all that stuff. So I was up and running in three with my own shop, trademark brand, everything.
again, to, to have you on the High Action Podcast is awesome because a lot of our listeners have been, um, while we've been featuring a lot of players, have been asking us to talk about instrument makers and instruments. And so this is really a cool insight, man, because you're just, I mean, you're the best. And um, Thanks, man. Yeah, and I... I so love- are you. Oh, dude, no, no, man. Um, All of you, yeah. Yeah, and and just a little backstory before I ask some questions for you. For the listeners um, who may be aware, um, I had an instrument commissioned um, by you that that we worked together on from 2017, and I took delivery of it right after New Year's of 2018. Um, and it was a f- great experience. I've I've gone through this experience a couple times, having instruments made for me, and. The thing that was so exciting for for me with you is that I'm a jazz musician, so it's like the most intimate instrument that I'm playing is an arch top, and it it's since become my main guitar, of course. Right. Um, and you know, it the neck feels amazing, the, the ergonomics feel amazing. It's it it continues to be an instrument that I'm I'm growing with a lot still, even after these years. And for the listeners who haven't had that experience yet with an instrument. Um, you'll know it when you get it. And sometimes it happens with a custom instrument. Sometimes it just happens with something that you find or you rediscover after a lot of years. I'm curious, what's like the number one thing that some of your customers ask for when it comes to your electrified instruments? Um, like, is there a, is there a real common thing that guys like, well, I want to get an S style guitar. Can you do it? Like, can you do this thing on there? Is it the pickups, the neck? I'm, I'm just always curious to ask about that. Um, I mean, the neck is kind of the heart of any guitar and how it's joined to the body. Mm-hmm. So I think when people come to me, it's because they need a level of precision and accuracy that you just can't get with almost any factory guitar and very few handmade ones for, for instance. Um, and intonation, because intonation, even if you're not really aware of it as a player, you are aware of how you sound, right? You're aware of it that way, like in a musical sense. Right. Um, so I think what people are coming to me for is to make a different style of guitar, whether it's a classical or a semi-hollow or an arch top that's very precise but is super musical at the same time. Mm -hmm. So, and they're all musical in their own way. Like an arch top is going to have a certain kind of tone, right? Mm -hmm. And a semi is going to have its tone and a classical its tone, but there are ways that you can maximize that. And the way you do that is that everything has to fit perfectly. So when I'm building a guitar, I make it with the same exactness that I make a violin. So, all the surfaces that get glued together are hand planed at the end um, instead of machine cut because machine cuts are smooth, but you have these little ridges. When you hand plane something, you get a perfectly smooth surface like fingerboard to neck surface. And then all my guitars, I use hot high glue. So people are like, well, what's the big deal about hot high glue? Well, the big deal is that it's a molecular bond of the two pieces of wood. When you use yellow glue, which is very sticky, but you literally have a film of vinyl between the pieces of wood. Hmm. If you look at a microscope of hide glue and you cut into a joint, you'll see that the, the, 
the pores and fibers of the wood are completely touching. It's the high glue going between them that joins them. Right. And, you know, speaking on that part of the construction, um, Jimmy DeQuisto experimented a lot with like laminate plates, of course, like the guitar he built for Jim Hall and Joe Pass. Um, and, and I'm curious, that's not something that, that you, that's not the path you went down with your arch tops. Like mine is a fully, fully carved top and everything too. Was that ever something that you wanted to experiment with? Or was it just something that, that you felt like tonally was inferior in a way to the, to a real hand carved top of an instrument? Well, I mean, Jimmy told me, and then the guitars he made for the rest of his life were all carved, that the, the laminated plates were a failure. Right, right. I mean, he said they sounded like it was underwater. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, hmm. yeah, and and that they didn't uh, they didn't improve in sound. They usually get worse. Yep, yeah. yep. Well, and, and they're kind of, I guess they're sort of built... It was an experiment, like like there's a few other makers, Roger Boris and stuff, and it's more of like an experiment to really electrify something that really should be an acoustic instrument too. Right. You know? So uh, so what what Jim, for instance, um, Jimmy didn't really like the sound of Jim Hall's guitar because uh, he told me that it was too dark. So Jimmy Jimmy made him a carved one. Uh-huh. Um, which, you know, I used to work with Jim all the time. My, my studio was a few blocks away and he would come and, and we would look at the guitars. I, I refretted his dequistos, all kinds of stuff. Yep. But so Jimmy made him a carved one, not all that different than the guitar you have, John. Uh-huh. And Jim loved it and played it all the time to practice on, but he was afraid to take it to a club. So he didn't really use it. He never really used that guitar because he, he was afraid. Uh, he, that's what he t- Jim told me. He was afraid to take it out ever, like even yeah, to a studio. Yeah. That makes sense because I've seen press photos of Jim with a 16-inch Dequisto, and it's not the one that's the, the real flamey cherry top. And I always wondered, I was like, was that a guitar he borrowed that Jimmy had around the shop while his was getting fixed? Um, so that's, that's a fascinating story. I mean, it's these kinds of stories our listeners love to hear because it's just you don't, you don't get to hear this elsewhere. And... Um, yeah, I mean, I've had a lot of guys look play my guitar instrument makers, and they comment on like how sturdy like that neck joint is, where the headstock yes. joint, how it's reinforced with that ebony there. And right. um, I don't worry. I fly. I've up until the pandemic, I've flown a lot with this instrument. I don't worry about it at all in the Calton case. And yeah. um, and and that's so cool that you took that one step farther. Um, and again, something that just sets you apart from a lot of from a lot of other luthiers because your arch tops are so different. I guess the last question I have for you, which is probably a little bit of a stupid question, but I I, I kind of have to ask it. Do you feel like every time you build a guitar, especially an arch top, that you're learning something new and that your process continues to just get more and more um, refined, or do you just really feel like what you're doing now, you're totally in the zone with, and you just want to do a lot of that at this point. Well, I mean, I am totally in the zone, but every guitar I'm doing new things that I think are better that I figure out. So I'm, I'm making a strat right now for, uh, for Russell Van Dyke who owns tone specific. And I changed a bunch of stuff because I've been thinking about it as I started it. I can improve this. I, I did some things where the neck is fitting tighter without compromising the lacquer for the bolt-on neck. Right. So 
I mean, that's the joy as an artist, right? You may have played, you know, my romance 2000 times, but the next time, you know, you're on a gig with uh, Jeff and he wants to play that tune or another one, you're going to interpret it. So it's better to you, right? You know, in the moment, in the moment. So my building is like that. It's, I, I build on a foundation. All my designs are, are blueprinted. Uh, they're literally all drawn. But once I figure out a change that I'm happy with, I actually change the drawing. So it, it, is, a, it is a true evolution. Uh, Steven. Hey, man, so great to see you. Thank you for joining you us. And it's been uh, really just a pleasure to kind of sit here and listen to have you talk about your experiences going between New York and Houston. You know, I'm living in Brooklyn. I'm living in Bay Ridge. So if you were coming up in Staten Island, you probably remember Bay Ridge. And oh, I, yeah. I've lived yeah. all over New York. I started out in the East Village on 10th Street, right. so not, not far from you. And uh, as you were telling those stories about being up on 48th Street, being around all those old guitar stores, uh, it just brings back uh, the memories I had when I first went to those stores to try to kind of get used to and get an idea of what was happening up there. And I've always loved talking to luthiers like yourself because I feel like there's a real connection between how seriously you guys take your craft and how seriously professional guitar players take our craft. You know, I think there's a like, right. a, like a kinship uh, there that we that kind of bonds us. You know, we're kind of working on different ends of the process, but uh, we need you just as much as you need us. You know, that's kind of how I feel about yeah. it. Well. There's something to interject there, which I do think is important, which is I think you have that bond when the guitar maker can play guitar mm. like yeah. and actually understands how the instrument works. You'd be shocked yes. at how many guitar makers have no idea how to play the guitar. <laughs> I mean, they, they really don't understand, which is why guitars don't play well. Right. No, you know, I, I because they don't you. understand the instrument. Yeah. I feel you, and I can attest, as can John and Will, who own your guitars. I'm the only one in the group that does not yet, but I can attest. We can fix that. <laughs> I can attest to uh, just how well your guitars play. The times I've been able to play a few, whether it's been John's or Will's or at Nam when I saw you. Um, yeah. For the listeners to understand that the necks are just so precise and so perfect, and that that term that you say, precision, I feel like really kind of defines a lot of uh, your craft as far as I've been able to tell on the guitar. So I just want you to know that that I have a ton of respect for what you do, and for the listeners out there, if you are interested in getting a really nice custom guitar, please check out uh, Stephen's guitars. They're just incredible. Um, I wanted to ask you. You know, when it comes to your experiences being a player also, you know, earlier in your career and establishing yourself as, you know, one of the most renowned builders, uh, what kind of similarities and differences do you see between the mentorship between, you know, musicians uh, that have helped people like myself come along? Uh, and you described, you know, some of the musicians in, early in your career that helped you kind of find your path. What, what sort of similarities do you see between... Uh, musician mentorship and uh, guitar building and luthier mentorship? Well, I mean, it's exactly the same thing. So remember I was talking a little bit about Jimmy DeCristo. Yeah. The, the, the real mentors I had 
to to learn the very precise, super accurate instrument making where both violin makers and they're both my dearest friends still to this day is Guy Rebu, who's a very, very good violin maker in New York City, mm-hmm. and Char- Charles Ruf- Rufino, who's out on Long Island. But when we met, he was okay. had a shop in Manhattan. Okay, um, and those guys. I still talk to them weekly, and the things we talk about are precision, right? In terms of how to perfectly do something, how to make the instrument more resonant. A lot of uh, the relationship and the mentorship is early on you're absorbing and you're integrating what you're learning. Mm -hmm. Like if you have a great jazz teacher or band leader or a guitarist you're studying with, you know, one of the open guys right. who wants to lift you off. Right? right. Right. But the mentor also has to tell you what you're not doing. Right. Exactly. So like guy, guy review, sometimes I'd propose like, well, I don't, I'm not happy with this. Like I carved the back this way and I feel this way about it. And he said, well, if that's your main feeling, you should make another one. <laughs> so he would, he was the guy who was always lifting me up to do the right thing. Right. right? I like that. You're, you're, talk, um, you're talking about people that um, were really had a positive influence on you, not the ones that are trying to kind of like bring you down or compete with you. And that's very similar to the experiences you can have as a musician. I guess one of the main differences I see is for musicians now, it's so institutionalized. We have schools, we have all these different programs right. and these things that kind of get people to different points. If, when it comes to being a guitar builder, there's not that many places you can go to like study. Like I remember New West, yeah. we did a show one time at the Roberta Venn School of Luthery, and I don't really know if there's too many others. So it's it's probably I mean, more it, of like a it, subculture, all, you know? All, all Roberta Venn tells you is how to do is use a belt sander. I mean, they don't... Like I, I had to go out there and do a college accreditation for the the institute that accredited accreditates uh or accredits small programs trade programs uh-huh. and i was shocked at how little they taught the students but i was surprised hmm. with every year there's one or two guys there who takes that tiny bit of information and just flies right like one of my my employees came out of roberto then but it was like one seed and then you start watering and cultivating whole garden. Right. Yeah, that's so. in, that's interesting because you know, kind of similar to I, I don't mean to equate you completely to being like an electrician or something like that, but you know, for years there was this huge idea of apprenticeship, you know, with people that are in these service yeah. positions. And you know, you're speaking about that as a luthier now, like the incredible experiences you had with the Equisto uh, that really helped you get to where you are. Do you feel like you're able now as the industry has changed? Are you able to kind of pass that tradition on to people that are oh, yeah. under you? I mean, Jimmy, who came, what, six years ago from Roberto Venn, is now a fully paid employee. And now I'm working with my daughter, Isabella, doing the same. I've had many other apprentices, but sometimes like they get to a year and you're like, okay, you kind of learned as much as you're going to learn here. Um, And that can be either their hands, Mm -hmm. you know, the technical facility, or it can be just their attitude. Like 
they wanted a certain amount of knowledge, but they're not really interested in going forward. So if I see somebody reach that point, I just tell them, you know, it, you should go do something else. You know, either your own guitar making yeah. or find something else to do for work. Yeah, kind of yeah. kind of like what Rudy told you. You got to go find your own way now. Yeah. <laughs> but then he wanted you right. back. That's yeah. funny. My, my yeah. last question is um, kind of pointed more towards... Uh, speaking towards players, players like me, um, and and really any kind of player that's like attached to an instrument, you know, and that's sort of where I found myself, for better or worse. You know, what do you say about kind of to players that are more connected to a vintage instrument or an instrument they've had for a while to kind of take the leap into something that's custom? Because it's not a, you know, it's a, it's a big leap. You know, you're talking about an expense, you're talking about changing a sound, you know, what sort of pitch do you have to people that might be interested in that i don't have any hitch if you have a vintage instrument and you love it you play it the the people who want one of my guitars usually who are pros and i i make for a lot of pros that's a that's a core part of my gig right of course the guys who come to me who want a new instrument want to grow beyond where they got with their vintage instrument Right. So it's about it's about that they want to go somewhere else. I don't have anything to sell them. If you love your vintage guitar, play your vintage guitar. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. There's some great ones, tons, thousands, yeah. hundred, millions, right? Same with violins. You know, who wants a, a modern violin? Well, almost no violinist wants one. They all want the old Italian violin, but they're not available or affo- affordable. Right. So when those people max out with what they've been playing on, then they'll go to a Guy Ray or a Charles Rufino to get an instrument to grow. And that's what happens with me with my pro players. Yeah. No, it definitely resonates with me. I mean, I've put so much, so many miles onto the 175 and I feel like I've gotten to a place with it where I'm like, Oh man, okay. I'm really like hearing a sound and feeling a touch and getting into a vibe. But then my fucking pickup is rattling all the time, you know, <laughs> or right. the intonation right. can get funny or it's, you know, and then, well, they, yeah, the like the intonation the on a guitar like that. Well, only the best it can be is always a big compromise. Right. And then, the action's not the same all throughout the neck, no matter what I do. And, and uh, you know, it's sort of like it's, you're sort of just sort of taking the good with the bad with something like that, you know? And I feel like even with brand new guitars that I've had, uh, it takes some time to really get them to a place where they're feeling good. You know, I always, I've kind of subscribed to this idea that, like, you know, a guitar played is really not necessarily better than a guitar made, but like if you've really played an instrument for a while, it's going to feel good. Whereas if you get a custom, of course. a beautiful custom ax and you never touch it, it's, you know, it may not feel the same. So. Yeah. At, at a period in my life before I was making the Spanish guitar. So it would have been New York about 96, 97. I studied classical guitar seriously. Mm. And, um, I wasn't, like in a space because I didn't know the instrument to design and make any. Mm-hmm. So I went to my friend in Philadelphia, Fred Oster's shop and was looking at old Spanish guitars he had. And there was one, and this is very interesting. He had all kinds of old Ramirez, Contreras, all kinds of beautiful stuff, mm-hmm. but he, he had an 
Anselmo Solar Gonzalez, the Solar Gonzalez. And that thing, it's old. I still have it. It's like from 71 or 72. Okay. Had this precision and tone, like I feel like my guitars have, but with this really old guitar. And I asked Fred, I didn't know anything about Solar Gonzalez because I hadn't studied those makers yet. And I said, Fred, this thing is amazing. What's the deal? And he said, of course it is. He was a violin maker. Like he was into that precision, right? Yeah. And I was like, and and that opened a whole new world for me. And then I had fun. I, I I gigged playing classical guitar for a few years and really got into that. And you know, then I, I typical I move on after a few years. Right, right. Well, yeah. You know, I just think everything you're doing is amazing. Uh, your reputation among the players is top notch. Um, people Thank that we, you. People all, that all because of you guys. Thanks. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, of course. Now, people that we've uh, known or interviewed, people like Mike Moreno, Reza Bassi, everyone's just, uh, you know, sings your praises. Uh, Leo, you know, everyone really sings your praises. So uh, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. great saying that I think would be really cool to wrap up with about the circular process of instrument making. Could you give that to us? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a bigger concept. It's, uh, in the center of the circle, you have art and music, right? And of course they're always connected because music is an art and art is music and musical. Mm -hmm. So what happens is, with a guitar, you start with a design. So, and I'm one of those makers, all of my guitars are original designs. I I don't do copies. I want to have it be my guitar. So you start with a design, which I take very seriously. And then there's the craft part of it, just like in painting or sculpture, there's a craft part, which is the physically making it, right? So you have the craft part of it. And if you elevate that oops sorry you guys if you elevate that high enough that in itself goes from being just a craft like being a a, let's say a shoe repair guy to the guy making the beautiful handmade italian shoes right so you're elevating that then you have the instrument which is created out of those processes that by itself is an object art Yet, just as a sculpture would be, yet it's silent until it goes to the musician. So the musician then turns the 
hard object and the instrument into a living, breathing, live musical instrument. But to complete the circle, the musician then has to make his art on it and then have that be received by the audience. So that that's the circular process. That's so great. I just wanted you to, I wanted to get that on record for us because I think that's such a wonderful all encompassing summary of what you do. And man, I, you know, we love, we love your guitars and, um, and we love how personal you are and how supportive you are. So man, thank you so, so much for, for everything. Um, and Marchione, um, dot com or Marchione guitars. Yeah. Marchione dot com. Yeah. Right. And then for yeah. the clients that want to check your instruments out, of course, being in Houston, but every now and then you frequent the guitar festivals and CR guitars in upper New York State. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, you can find my stuff at CR Guitars mm-hmm. uh, in New York. Uh, Robin Weber at guitar, guitargal.com. She's in Nashville. She always has both new and used models. I highly encourage people to check her out. Uh, cool. Craig. Snyder also has used ones. And then on the West Coast, uh, there's a guy who sells privately, Greg Vincent. He's got stuff in L.A. And then um, in Arizona, uh, Vic Ratz at Red Circle Guitars has guitars of mine. So they're they're around on different coasts. And anybody's mm-hmm. always welcome to come by the studio. I mean, I'm closed to the public, but I make appointments and you get a tour and cool. check out what I got. Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.